Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And I'm thrilled to have the two guests we have today, Lloyd's Banking Group Experience Strategist, Laurent Christophe, and Forrester VP and Principal Analyst, Fatima Catablu. And they're here to discuss how Lloyd's has converted privacy into a source of differentiation. Welcome to you both. Hi, uh, glad to be here. Hey, guys. Thanks for having us. So, Laurent, in 2016, GDPR was passed. It was sort of looming on the horizon. And as opposed to seeing that as simply onerous, you saw it as an opportunity. Can you describe what you saw in GDPR? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, I kind of personally fell into this by accident, right? So um, GDPR was on the horizon, um, data privacy and risk teams started to think about hey, guys, this is maybe an opportunity to uh, do something with privacy and customer experience. And, uh, you know, we started to think about what we could do and how we could respond to some of the obligations of the the new regulation. Um, But what we really missed at the time was a view of, well, what does this really mean for consumers, right? So... Uh, what do they know about data privacy and what are their perceptions of how their data is handled by different organizations? And uh, therefore, we kicked off a, a, a big piece of research to understand more about uh, the level of awareness, expectations, uh, whether uh, consumers trust financial institutions with their data, and reframe the uh, the view of of the regulation into well, what are really the the customer problems that we want to solve um, through the, the the GDPR mechanism. And me, I didn't know anything about data privacy beforehand, and it was really a big revelation that actually this is becoming like pretty important. And at the end of our customer experience like uh, vision exercise and um, experimented with different ways of presenting information, solving some of these customer problems, marketing preferences and stuff. And we knew that actually the expectation that people had um, around how the bank should respond was already <laughs> passed beyond the, the actual like, regulatory requirement, right? So we knew that this was going to be like a long-term game and that we needed to do more than simply abide by the regulatory standards from a customer experience perspective. So one question that I have is, I mean, customers come in all shapes and sizes. How did you get beneath what different customers may perceive about privacy, what they may want about privacy, and how you can connect with them as it relates to privacy? So uh, this is where actually by speaking to you guys and to Fatima, we uncovered this idea of the privacy segmentation, which really helped us break down this idea that privacy is a binary thing, right? So um, in the past, you know, we probably thought about privacy as, well, there's something that's private to me, and then I can disclose whatever I want to other people that is public. But you have just realized that privacy is not black and white in the digital age is more a constant trade of evaluation between what I'm happy to reveal uh, and what I want to get back. And uh, the, the segmentation really helped us get under the skin of 
how the different attitudes uh, and digital skills and education that people have impact their behavior and also the expectation from, from other organizations in terms of how the data, the data is collected uh, but also used. And so that was really uh, a big revelation. And we did a lot of work uh, with Fatima to try and bring to life some of these segments and think about, okay, so for the, the data savvy digitals, well, what does their future look like in like a three to 10 year horizon? How are their experience and attitudes and behaviors related to data and privacy likely to change as a result of really big trends such as, uh, you know, like, so obviously like the, the regulatory push from GDPR um, and, and more to come and new type of like services springing up and the aim to provide customers with like more control. Uh, and also these, these um, new services that in the future will become more interconnected. Fatima, I think it might be helpful to maybe just uh, give the audience a brief like overview of what the privacy segmentation is and maybe some of the the different types of segments. Sure. Sure. So we did, um, well, Laurent said it really well. He said, um, I, you know, privacy isn't binary. And that's, that's often what I lead with. Um, I think people want to make privacy something simple and binary. Um, and when I say people, I mean often marketers. Um, so we, I, I sort of got tired of hearing that, to be honest with you, and I got tired of hearing that millennials don't care about their privacy. Um, and so we went into our massive um, capabilities with consumer technographics and started to build out um, some personas around privacy. And we've been doing that now for four years, and we've seen some really dramatic shifts. So we look at things like um, awareness of the data economy and comfort with the data economy. In other words, how comfortable is an individual with the fact that their data is sort of perpetually being sold and traded and exchanged? Uh, we look at things like the willingness to share more personal information. And we've got two segments who are really, really not at all willing to share for very different reasons. And then we've got three segments that are willing to share, although one of those segments is only willing to share in exchange for um, real, not just value, but in order to get the service that they want. Um, so, for example, one of our segments um, that, that Laurent alluded to, the data savvy digitals really doesn't have a sort of consumerist perspective on data sharing. Um, they they will share information if it's required to get a service or to sign up for a service or so on. Their counterparts, who in all other respects look very similar, are what we call the conditional consumerists. And that segment will share for just about any reason. Um, they happen to have the most loyalty program memberships. Um, they're very tech-savvy, tech um, high spenders, but they also use a lot of privacy tools. 
So we're starting to see these very nuanced shifts in behavior. Um, it is true, in fact, that some millennials, many millennials, actually do care about privacy, and that when they have a major life stage change, so like they go out to get mortgages or they have children, um, suddenly they they are much more protective of their personal information and care much more about privacy. And just as a question of that, Fatima, and I'll just use the mortgage as the example, which is in some ways I'll be willing to have a value exchange with someone else as long as there's not a whole lot of consequence other than I might get more ads or something like that, which is a pretty low consequence game. But if that data gets used in a certain way for profiling, it begins to affect credit scoring. It begins to affect credit worthiness or other decisions that are made downstream and away from my eyes. That's a different kind of thing. How did you see that in the data as people, as you say, go through life stages and they start to understand the consequences of all that data? Yeah, so they they start using more data protection tools. Um, They start to respond differently to the questions. So where we ask things like, are you comfortable with your location being collected and shared at all times, for example, or do you think location-based advertising is a fair exchange for location tracking, the answers start to change and where they once said yes, now they're more likely to say no or now they're more likely to to be not as comfortable with some of those types of data collection and use. And Laurent, as you looked at it from a Lloyd's perspective and you start looking at your customers tangibly, what did you what did you observe in terms of some of the outputs of that segmentation that was surprising or illuminating to your how you would go forward? I think for me there's like two things that were really interesting in, in all of the research that we did. So Fatima, you, you talked about the data data survey digitals and happy to exchange uh, data when it makes sense for them to do so. But what we found when doing more qualitative research and speaking to people is that they have this feeling of resigned acceptance that, yeah, okay, I have to compromise my data or sacrifice it to access the service. And it doesn't feel great, but I do it anyway because the convenience is just too big to lose. And my feeling on this is that in the long run, keeping customers in a state of reason acceptance isn't isn't good enough. And actually, as new kind of privacy presenting services start to emerge, then they may become a threat to companies who haven't really taken more of a maybe like maybe ethical is not the right word, but like a stronger stance or have a clear view about where to draw the line when it comes to data privacy practices in the organization. The other thing that we found out that was really surprising is something that you see in the first data as well, right? Which is overall between industries, financial services are the most trusted when it comes to keeping data safe. But when you speak to people in qualitative interviews, focus groups, and so on, they do talk about their concern about like, how the data is being used. And um, I think there's still a lot more to do to be transparent uh, about what companies uh, do with the data that you have. Um, and then finally, 
you know, there's only so much you can achieve with, with transparency, right? So you can be extremely transparent about your data practices, the data that you collect, and what you're going to do with it. But what this does, it just places the burden back onto customers and expecting people to understand all the intricacies is, is, is simply like too difficult. Uh, and it is it's too much of a, of a heavy load on, on consumers. So we really have to think about how we want to shape our practices and what are the lines that we want to draw in the sand and uh, what is morally uh, acceptable or not, not just legally acceptable, but also not morally acceptable. I think um, you hit on something which is really, really important, which is um, like the expectation. We, we talk a lot about like this question of reasonable expectation. And, and you know, when you are using data in a given way, um, I always ask clients, and I know you do this in your group all the time, um, would our customer reasonably expect us to use the data in this way? And I think if your answer is not kind of universally yes, um, where the yes is coming from um, the perspective of my mom and my uncle and my nephew and not just the marketer or not just the business owner, um, that's where you have to start saying maybe we shouldn't do this. And I think the qualitative research that you that you did and your team did um, really kind of pulled some of some of those those highlights out for me. Like we have to ask that question every time we plan to use data in a new way. So, so to that end, uh, Fatima, you've done research associated with personal digital twins. This is sort of customers taking greater ownership of their own identity and their own um, data, if you will, and. In it, you made a comment that there are there are folks out there, firms that could play a role of sort of fiduciary role, which is they become to be trusted stewards of a individual's data. Is this is part what we're pointing at here, which is the idea that an individual wants to be a steward, probably doesn't have the means to be a steward, and will look to people in this case like Lloyd's to be that entity that that starts with a higher level of trust. To your point, Laurent, but then builds upon that trust. That's an area that is increasingly complex and really has some opposing forces in it. Yeah, that's right. Um, I I think um, there is actually a huge business opportunity. And in fact, we are beginning to see murmurings of it. Um, You're starting to see financial services firms, certainly in the U.S. and and in other places, begin to provide, for example, um, you can log in with your bank credential in the same way that you used to use Facebook to log into stuff, which I hope no one's doing anymore. Um, You can use your bank credential to log into things that is a trusted digital identity. So we are beginning to see that, and I think it's a huge opportunity for financial services firms to be trusted, to be trusted to use the data well and to, um, so for the consumer, but also because banks are trusted because they have legal requirements to verify who you are before they give you an account. And so we're, we're thinking about trusted digital identity in a very different way. And of course, financial services companies are the natural place for that. And um, it's, it's a potential business opportunity. So Laurent, you said earlier in this discussion that Lloyd's 
banking broadly and Lloyd specifically just has a higher level of trust than other industries. And I think my guess is that you saw privacy as seizing upon that advantage, which is you're already trusted. Privacy is a trust question and you could play a larger role with your customers in that context. Yeah, I mean, potentially, I think the uh, what came out of the work that we did was that privacy isn't just about, uh, you know, data exchange, cookies, and adverse, right? It's actually, like, we think about it as six key themes, uh, which are building trust for transparency, education and reassurance, digital identity, privacy control and management, privacy protection, and something we call like data wealth, which is, you know, how you help individuals basically harness value out of their data, right? And so we have to think about across these different themes, where do we want to play? What are our competitors doing? Uh, where are opportunities to differentiate? And, you know, where is actually like the basic requirement to meet uh, customers' expectations? So as you sought to to achieve those goals, Lloyd's, like many banks, has different teams, different silos, and yet this is something that would bring together privacy, marketing, and other teams. How did you go after this organizationally to achieve those goals? So this is really about bringing people together on the journey, right? So when you set up your working group or your working party that's trying to envision the future of privacy as far as customer experience is concerned, then it's your responsibility to go and reach out to your partners and stakeholders in the organization because you as a CX professional or a designer on your own, you, you can't achieve all of this. And also, we need the expertise uh, from people in risk, privacy, marketing, engineering. And it's really about, for me, how it works is you find like-minded uh, individuals, right? People who believe that this is important and, and they are seeing eye to eye, right? This is an opportunity to improve customer experience and it's likely to become but that's more important in the future based on all of the trends that we can see in the marketplace. So for me, I don't really see silos as much as, as an issue. It's more, you know, individuals leading and reaching out to like-minded individuals. We have a lot of clients who are searching to operate across their teams. And to your point, they get like-minded people, but they may not have the political clout, the economic clout to actually put something in market. It might be a great meeting, but they couldn't get over the line in terms of actually making that an operational capability or product capability. How did you go from finding like-minded people to building something that could go into market and make a difference? So the GDPR program that we ran was really well established and well run. And actually the culture of the organization is such that there is a big appetite to do the right thing for customers, to do research before deciding on solutions and also experimenting and learning what works for customers, um, which in turn would provide uh, value for the organization as well. So we didn't really struggle with that because the way the GDPR program was set up and the funding mechanisms we had in place 
really well established. What's more challenging is once the GDPR program shuts down because we have delivered what, in, what we needed to deliver from a regulatory perspective, then you really rely on some of the internal champions to try and drive this thing forward. So it, it becomes like more difficult. And, and so this is an established initiative, right? But to your point, this, you know, the GDPR team as a formal structure may go away, but it sounds like because this is baked into your culture, who you are, you know, professionals at Lloyd's are, feel like they are stewards of their clients or their customers' data, this may part and parcel just be how you operate moving forward. Is that fair? Yeah, and, you know, around the time with uh, GDPR was gone, there was a lot of uh, communication internally around why GDPR and the good it's bringing and our responsibilities as representative of, of the organization. You know, one thing that I'll mention is that we're in a very similar situation in North America right now with the California Consumer Privacy Act set to come online um, in January of 2020. Now, there's still a lot of open questions about what's known as CCPA, um, but that is an incredibly similar um, mechanism for companies to begin pulling together these privacy working groups. So as our clients are now starting to call us, I mean, it's April and we're eight months out, um, but we're starting to get calls from clients saying, okay, what do we need to do about CCPA? And the first, first, first piece of advice is make sure you've got all the right people in the room. And so this is actually an incredible time and an incredible opportunity for our North American and global clients to start to put these teams together and, like Laurent's team did, have champions across the organization for privacy. So as it relates to California, at least to GDPR, Laurent, your firm sought a certain way and really pursued a certain strategy. Yes, we have the requirements to meet the regulation but we do so by almost spinning this on its head and thinking, okay, what are customers' expectations related to this first? And actually, if we meet this, then we'll be pretty close to meeting our regulatory uh, requirements when it comes to any consumer-facing information or journeys or processes. As you, look, as you talk to your clients, Fatima, how many of them are seeing these requirements, GDPR or the, or the California regulation coming into play as purely onerous and sort of the singular responsibility of privacy, how many are you seeing it as this is now something they can they respond to in service of their customers, meaning providing advantage to their customers and seeing it that way, giving themselves the time, headspace to, to move in that direction? Unfortunately, the majority see it as a compliance function. Uh, even now, even after everything that we've learned sort of post-GDPR. That said, we have seen more clients who really kind of went full force into the compliance mindset for GDPR. Now, a year later, beginning to think about, okay, so we've done that. We've ticked all the boxes that we needed to tick. What can we, what can we do now? Um, and so we're actually beginning to see things like our GDPR data auditing process told us that we need a, 
a, an enterprise data strategy. And so they're actually building an enterprise data strategy out of it. Um, people are starting to think, okay, we did consent management for GDPR, and so we're doing all of the cookie consent stuff on our websites. Can we turn that into a more positive experience and use um, um, consent in context as opposed to slamming people with a cookie page as soon as they hit our website before we even know if they're going to click on a second page. So we're becoming a little bit more considerate of privacy experiences, um, but that's happening later in the game because everybody was really worried about compliance. It looks like with CCPA, we're going to go a very similar route. Could I add something on this? It's what you talked about you know, marketing consent and cookie consent and the traditional like mechanisms. Well, this is, this is really the point around value exchange, right? So when you frame some of these choices as, you know, do you want to hear about these kind of products <laughs> and services from us? You're not really um, providing valuable choices, right? So... What we found in research is that when you think about, okay, what are the goals of our customers? Where do they need our help? And where do they want us to help them? This becomes a much like easier question to ask. And also, people are generally more likely to say, yes, actually, I'm in this situation and this is what I'm trying to achieve. If you can help me, then please, by any means, let me know. And that goes to the point about context, right? Like, that is almost everything in this situation, whether it's privacy or offering up a useful product or what have you. Understanding that customer's context, I mean, is a silver bullet. And we're talking about trust here, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. This is the core of what we're talking about. And by asking, how can I help you, you are, you are creating trust. If you actually can help, you're creating trust. Now, the flip side of this is when, when a company captures information and then doesn't use it appropriately or doesn't use it to actually drive value for their customers. So I'm going to ask you all of these questions about, for example, um, uh, there's a website that we refer to a lot, and I won't name it here, but it's actually a, a pet supply company. And they have, you know, they ask about what kind of animal you have and the age of the animal and so on. And then they use that information not at all. So they make the same recommendation for your kitten that they do for your geriatric cat. Um, and so that doesn't, in turn, invoke trust. So, so we have to be mindful of that, too. If we're going to offer to help and collect information in order to do so, we have to actually follow through on that promise. Yes, because otherwise you are simply raising expectations from the beginning. And if you're not delivering on it, then you deliver a much worse experience than if we didn't make any promise at all. And as, and as you guys look at privacy generally, there is the concept of privacy comes into consciousness because of GDPR or California. And then there's the, you know, the, the breaches and other misuse and abusive data that has become very public. How have you seen the sensibilities of privacy change? And, and where do you see this going from here? Do you see this 
being treated as a human right and the customer really begins to be super aware of what's happening and the, this, this value exchange relationship you guys are pointing at? Or does this fall into the background? Where does it go from here, given given all of these movements as it relates to the use of data? So privacy through this lens, Victor, is a very, very cultural thing. Europe has a very different lens. And in fact, countries within Europe have a very different lens on data collection, on privacy, and the importance of privacy because of something that happened in their very recent past, right? World War II and the subsequent um you know, data roles that had been captured in the lead up to that, um, that were then used by the Stasi in Germany, were that's that's the worst breach of privacy ever. And we don't have anything like that in the U.S. So we in the U.S. think about privacy very differently than many parts of Europe do. So much so that the European Constitution includes privacy as a fundamental human right. We don't have that in the U.S. So we have to start from that baseline. And then from there we build up. And I think that people in general are much more conscious and aware of the amount of data that they're leaving behind as they go about their digital day. They're very conscious of the fact that there is this burgeoning data economy. And they're figuring out that data breaches, security breaches, aren't the only problem. So when we think about the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal, there was no security breach there. That, that data was willingly and contractually handed over to a third party for one purpose. That person then used the data in a different way. And that's not something that Facebook could govern very well. That's not something that they could actually um, audit very well. So when, so these kinds of things are coming up, people are beginning to understand that it's not just about security breaches and identity breaches, but rather it's that there's this data ecosystem that we as individuals have no visibility over. In the long term, I think this really starts to um, um, affect consumer trust, affects consumer willingness to do business with brands. Um, and we're already hearing a lot of people jumping on the, you know, the break them up bandwagon, right? I mean, we, you look at Twitter, you look at um, any social media, and you're hearing people call for, on both sides of the political spectrum, you're hearing people call for the breakup. People are calling for more transparency around data collection. And we have something like 11 states negotiating privacy bills. Uh, we've got a number of privacy uh, uh, bills in play at the federal level, and this is happening globally. So moving forward, I think companies cannot afford to take the same laissez-faire approach to data collection, and they're going to have to be a lot more transparent about their data practices, and they're going to have to start thinking about privacy experiences the way Laurent's team has. Um, we need to start thinking about privacy and and the um, privacy page and the consent forms and all of these things as really important end user experiences and touch points and start designing them that way. I think I would add to this that you know we need some exploration of what the future of AI data trust would look like in five to ten years and. 
we came up with some future hypotheses, right? And the two or three that are quite interesting. And I think it, you know, it hasn't been decided yet which which way it's going to go. But you have one future hypothesis, which is that in the future people have people will have full control over the data, and they will be aided by digital assistants and some of the other systems to help manage it on their behalf, right? So you remove the the manual decision making um, and um, evaluation of the different services you're using to some predetermined control that do like the heavy lifting for you. That's like one one way. But then you also have potentially this um, future which we've like labeled acceptance, which is that you know as time becomes a lot more valuable to people, well actually they will happily share the personal data and and rely on technology to make the most of it. No, this is the, the data savvy digitals. We know that um, they are taking some measures to protect their privacy, but they're still in that state of reason acceptance. And you know, I'm wondering whether at some point, if not enough is done to restore faith in the data economy, whether we're going to just carry on accepting it for what it is, um, which could be like a third scenario, which is around tech rebellion, which is that people potentially in the future would rebel against technology due to the impact it's having on them, on their mental health, on their physical well-being. And we see some signs already here, right, with people disconnecting from social media, from uh, having digital detox, uh, or even, you know, uninstalling apps because they're receiving too many notifications. It's polluting their days. Right. So... It's you know it's it's quite interesting to think about these drastic futures because we think it's likely to improve over the next few years, but long term, I don't think it's decided just yet. So as you think of sort of the message to the audience here, Laurent, you saw GDPR coming, you saw it a certain way, and it kind of manifested in some really cool privacy experiences. And Fatima, as you say, you're looking at clients sort of trying to understand GDPR at a first step, and now they're trying to understand what's happening in California as a second step, and they're trying to figure out, like, how, how to proceed. What's the big learning that you guys had over the last year that is insights or advice to our audience about how to, how to, resp- how to sort of excel in this data economy, H- how to be different, and how to be in service of your customer in this data economy? So I think for me, the, the answer to that is pretty simple, which is go and speak to your customers right now to understand the expectations uh, of you as an organization, how they view their relationship with you, um, how trusted you are, um, and also think about the level of awareness of you know how the data is being collected and used by your organization, right? We know some of the expectations are going to change like quite rapidly in the future. So, you know, you may want to do research at at the edges, right? So um, maybe with consumers who are uh, very young, maybe like, you know, 16 onwards, or some who have like really drastic view about the digital economy. But do that and then think about the sort of like relationship you want to build for the long term with your consumers privacy will be at one key part of this. So 
it's really about not putting your relationship at risk with your customers, and that's how we some research. I could not agree with Laura more. Um, one of the things that, that has resulted from this sort of explosion of data and the, the ability to derive insights. And, you know, we talk about um, switching from, from data to insights and being an insights-driven organization. We have forgotten that we are allowed to talk to our customers and do focus groups and actually ask our customers questions. Um, we've become so data-led that we, we forget that data is both quantitative and qualitative. So that is such an important point that Laurent made, and I could not agree with it more wholeheartedly. The other thing that I'll say is I actually think that the, the term data ethics is and should really take the place of the conversation about privacy. Um, we need to start thinking not about our regulatory compliance requirements, but rather about are we using this data in an ethical way? And that means thinking about some edge cases. That means once you understand your customer's tolerances for data and data collection and use, and you start designing experiences for them, that you're designing transparent that you're not trying to design things with dark patterns to get somebody to click on the accept button um, just because, you know, you think they're going to be okay with it. No, rather design your your, your practices, your experiences, um, and your data practices with an ethical frame of mind. Um, and that really keeps both the regulators at bay and the sort of, you know, activist community and, and hacktivist community as well. So one of the big lessons is keeping the human front and center in this whole process. Exactly. Absolutely. Both of you, I thank you so much for your time today. It was a lovely discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks, guys. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.